Hello and welcome to another episode of the Iran podcast. I'm your host, Negar Mortazavi, a journalist and political analyst based in Washington, D.C., and a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy. In this episode, we'll talk about the IRGC, or Iran's Revolutionary Guards. We'll talk about the history and formation of the organization, the various stages of its operation, and where they stand today. My guest today is Annie Tracy Samuels. She's an associate professor of history and a member of the graduate faculty at the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga. Prior to joining the UTC, Professor Samuels served as a research fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School. She holds a PhD and master's degree in history from Tel Aviv University and a bachelor's in history and political science from Columbia University. Professor Samuel specializes in the modern history of Iran and the Middle East. Annie, welcome to the Iran Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you. Um, let's first start by a general overview of your book. I want to mention your book actually to our audience. Uh, you wrote this excellent book about the Revolutionary Guards. It's titled The Unfinished History of the Iran-Iraq War, Faith, Firepower, and Iran's Revolutionary Guards. Um, you discuss basically the history of the guards, how the formation and the, the impact and influence in the country grew um, at very serious uh, historical junctures. Let's talk about, let's give us a general overview of what this book is about and how you discuss the Revolutionary Guards. Yes. Uh, the book, as you said, is called The Unfinished History of the Iran-Iraq War. And it's about both the Iranian Revolutionary Guards, or the IRGC, and the Iran-Iraq War. And it investigates those subjects by looking at how the IRGC has written and constructed the history of the Iran-Iraq War. So what that project is, how and why it came about, and what its significance is. And the book is based on a massive volume of Persian language publications produced by the IRGC's Holy Defense Research and Documentation Center, which is a center within the IRGC that is entirely devoted to recording and writing the history of the war. Uh, the center was founded in the middle of the war, around 1985, but the project of recording the history of the war within the guards began very early in the conflict, which is demonstrates uh, how important the, the war is to the guards, that they understood right from the beginning of the war that what they were experiencing was highly important and that it was worthy of documentation. Uh, and the book as a whole shows that the war and its history, both the, the war itself and the history of the war, are really fundamental to understanding the IRGC. Uh, and that's for a few reasons, including the very close connections between the Iran-Iraq War, which began in 1980, and the Islamic Revolution in Iran, which took place in 1979, uh, also because of the war's influence on the IRGC, and more broadly because of how the IRGC views history and the role of history in power and in the formation of national narratives. 
And I use the theme of faith and firepower to explore the significance of the war to the IRGC, and also as a way to challenge many of the existing assessments of the organization. So by faith, I mean the way the guards relied on things like religious commitment, revolutionary ideology, and popular morale in fighting the war. And by firepower, I mean the way they relied on military professionalism, strategy, and weapons. And in the existing scholarship on the IRGC and the war and in in much of, of popular commentary, we see a real emphasis on faith. We see this notion that the IRGC relied overwhelmingly, if not exclusively, on faith and that it did so to its own detriment. And much of that comes from assessments that are based on Iranian rhetoric alone. And so I wanted to shift the focus away from the rhetoric alone and instead focus on what the IRGC actually did in the war and what their own sources say in the war. Mm -hmm. And what I found is that Iran prosecuted the war by relying on all the tools at its disposal, both faith and firepower, that those two are complementary and that the guards were not opposed to relying on traditional methods of warfare uh, when it made sense to do so. Mm -hmm. So in in essence, the book is about the IRGC and the Iran-Iraq war and and the combination of those two. Mm -hmm. So let's first talk about the formation. You mentioned at the very beginning of your book, you said you mentioned how Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps, or the IRGC, it is as it's referred to, the Sepah in Iran, is one of the most powerful and prominent, but also one of the least understood organizations that are in Iran. And I very much agree with that. So let's first talk about the formation of the guards. This is, as you mentioned, post the 1979 revolution during the Iran-Iraq, the long Iran-Iraq war and connects sort of to the faith of the the traditional army of the country as it's called the Artesh coming out of a previous regime, a topple regime and the a new establishment that is now dealing with this war with a uh, foreign state. So talk about the formation, um, the the very beginning of the SEPA or the IRGC. Certainly. Uh, So the context necessary for understanding the IRGC comes from understanding the the immediate post-revolutionary period in Iran, which was characterized by the dissipation of the state and with it the state's ability to control the country. And therefore, the paramount task for Iran's new leaders was establishing their full control over the means of coercion and the country as a whole. And doing so required force and forces capable of carrying out that task, which is, of course, precisely what the state lacked. As you mentioned, the Islamic Republic uh, inherited a regular military, the Artesh, uh, from the Shah's regime. Uh, But because the Artesh had 
served as the main pillar uh, upholding the Shah's regime, uh, it was very much distrusted by Iran's new leaders. Uh, however, uh, those leaders soon understood that the Artesh was necessary to reestablish order in the country and ensure their domination of the state, uh, especially as armed opposition mounted. Uh, they therefore decided to maintain and rehabilitate the Artesh uh, by eliminating elements that were affiliated the Shah's regime and to try to reshape it into a force that was aligned with and loyal to the Islamic Republic. And it was those same motivations that were central to the decision to establish the IRGC. Uh, and the force, the SEPA, uh, was designed as one whose loyalty to the Islamic Republic would be beyond doubt and that could check the power of the Artesh. Uh, the earliest efforts to establish the IRGC came immediately following the revolution's victory. Uh, the formal establishment came in April 1979 uh, with the decree by revolutionary leader Ayatollah Khomeini uh, directing the governing Revolutionary Council to establish the IRGC, uh, which it proceeded to do in a statute. And according to that statute, the Guard's primary mission was guarding the Islamic Revolution. Uh, and the statute goes on to list uh, several duties that include uh, defending against attacks and occupation by foreign agents or forces within the country. Uh, it also includes combating armed opposition, uh, cooperating with the state's other armed forces, gathering intelligence, training its members, and, and other economic and societal functions. Uh, and what I think is significant about those duties is that it demonstrates well the breadth of the IRGC's mission, uh, which encompasses both internal and external security. Uh, and while the former reflects the revolutionary circumstances in which the IRGC was established, uh, the latter reveals that its founders anticipated a future in which its responsibilities would expand, as they indeed have. And so while it's common to point out that the IRGC has increased its power in the past two decades or so, and that's certainly true, uh, it's also important to note the, the statutory breadth of the mission uh, from the outset. Uh, prior to the Iran-Iraq War, the IRGC gradually took shape with its first efforts to recruit members uh, and resources and carry out operations. Uh, and in the period prior to September 1980, uh, its activities centered mostly on countering anti-revolutionary groups uh, and armed movements in various parts of Iran, uh, which engaged the guards in their first military confrontations, uh, which soon became quite significant uh, when they drew on that experience uh, in the conflict with Iraq. Let's mm -hmm. um, also talk about the role of Sepah, as you're mentioning, in the war. That was a very significant period, essentially, in um, the consolidation of power and how it played out in relation to the Artesh, the conventional military, the military that was inherited from the previous regime, and essentially how that role, what I'm trying to understand is if you can explain how the role during that eight-year war has shaped the current 
influence and stature of the organization, the IRGC? Yes. Uh, So as you mentioned, the war was uh, a profound uh, challenge for this still new regime. Uh, And one of the first things that it did is that it generated broad acceptance that neither the country nor the regime could be secure without a strong military. And so the Iraqi invasion at the end of September 1980 uh, helped catalyze the further rehabilitation of the Artesh uh, as the Revolutionary Guards took on their newly augmented duties uh, of defending the country at the Artesh's side. Um, When the IRGC sources that I refer to in the book uh, assess Iran's response to the invasion, they characterize it as a combination of willingness and inability. Uh, So whereas people were willing to defend the revolution because they were mobilized by the recent movement and the desire to protect it, on the whole, they were largely unable to do so. Uh, They were not prepared for the full-scale Iraqi invasion when it came, uh, in large part because the revolution was ongoing in the country as a whole, and especially in the IRGC, uh, as well as, as the Artesh, which were still both in a transitional phase. And for those reasons, the Iraqi invasion led to uh, a period of occupation uh, of several significant pieces of Iranian territory in the West along the border uh, and about a year of stalemate. And then through the spring to fall of 1980, as the revolution progressed to the point that it could help rather than hurt the war effort, and as Iran's two armed forces, the Artesh and the Sepa, learned to work together, Iran was finally able to turn the tide and to expel the Iraqi forces that had occupied its territory. Uh, and then Iran made the decision in the summer of 1982 uh, to continue the war by invading Iraq. Uh, and both in these early years of the conflict, but especially after the Iranian invasion of Iraq, we see that the IRGC is becoming increasingly prominent. And what that shows is that the the IRGC's expansion mirrored that of the war, uh, and it reflects the conflict's role in providing the IRGC with circumstances uniquely conducive uh, to its augmentation and its institutionalization. Uh, In their contributions to Iran's battlefield successes, uh, the guards demonstrated that they had the ability to operate as a more regular and professional military force and gradually to integrate their commitment to the revolution into a better organized structure. Uh, And in the process, the guards became committed to guarding the revolution, not only internally, but externally. Uh, So in other words, the war provided the IRGC with an opportunity to carry out the entirety of its mission and to thereby secure its role as the single most important force, ensuring not only the Islamic republics, but also Iran's survival. Mm -hmm. And... And you've also uh, talked about the legacies of the war in Iran. I want to um, start tying this to today. First of all, how the 
history writing of the war, what actually happened and the role of Sepa and then the legacy of that war and Sepa's role in that war um, in the country today are all very um, significant and important aspects of how powerful and influential the organization is and has become over the past two decades, as you mentioned. Can you explain that a um, little bit, how the role, the history of writing, and in general, the legacy of the war impacts the influence of this organization in the country today? Certainly. Uh, well, the the history writing of the war, uh, as I said, is is central to understanding the IRGC, uh, and it shows how central the war is to the organization's legitimacy and identity. Uh, the project, uh, as I mentioned, of, of recording the history of the war began right away in spring 1981, uh, and at that time, the IRGC was still a small uh, unorganized force, but it did have a uh, organization within it called the Political Bureau. Uh, in the in the spring of 1981, the Political Bureau established what it was called a War History Division. Uh, and early on, the War History Division began training what they called war narrators uh, to go out and actively record the history of the war, uh, to be embedded with different IRGC units, uh, to observe, to record, to collect documents, to conduct surveys uh, through uh, all sorts of methods. Um, and the narrators went through extensive training about how to go about doing this, how to fulfill the role of a historian in the midst of a war. Uh, and that work proceeded through the entire duration of the war and then for some time afterwards. Uh, and then after the war, the uh, Holy Defense Research and Documentation Center, as I mentioned, uh, shifted its work uh, from actively recording the history uh, to organizing and publishing uh, books based on the documents and the information it had collected. And those publications are quite impressive. Uh, they include a 57-volume chronology of the Iran-Iraq War. Uh, not all 57 volumes have been published, but the center is steadily coming out with new volumes. And each one of those is very large, many hundreds of pages. And each volume documents a certain period of the war and proceeds day by day. It includes analysis of the day's major events, excerpts from documents that the IRGC narrators collected, uh, news reports from Iran, and also news uh, internationally. In addition to that, the center has published several other uh, series, uh, including atlases, a series on historiography, oral histories, histories that look at specific units and, and battles uh, that really show the extent of this project. Uh, 
And in the book, I discuss why exactly the IRGC has done this. Why has a military organization like the IRGC devoted so much of its time and and resources, although, of course, relatively small in the grand scheme of things? But why is it so committed to this project? Uh, And what I found uh, through my analysis of of the sources comes down to, to really the importance the IRGC attaches both to the war, to the Iran-Iraq war, the experience of fighting it, its impact on the revolution, on Iran, on Iranians, and also because of the importance they attach to history. Uh, One of the things that I found that I was surprised to see was how sophisticated the IRGC's historical analysis is. Uh, There's a real drive to understand history and war in all of their complexity. Uh, And there's also a, a clear awareness of the close relationship between the past and the present, uh, the importance of historical context, and of how history shapes national identity. Uh, And in these texts, the IRGC authors describe a historical imperative to keep the war alive, especially as the war fades further and further into the past, and new generations are born with no memory uh, of of the war or the revolution uh, that preceded it. Uh, And and the overall message of of these histories is that action is meaningless in the absence of history. Uh, And the authors tend to view history as as a collection of moments uh, that can be lost if not preserved, and that they're committed to this imperative to ensure that the moments are preserved and that the history of the war is kept alive. Mm-hmm. And it, as you explained, so much of today's decision making or even the country's grand strategy has this aspect of keeping that war, if not alive, but having a perspective with that in mind, that this is something that happened that could be happening again and is something that we're trying to prevent. And I want to... Uh, try to tie that to today, the role and influence of the IRGC SEPA. It's an extremely powerful organization inside and outside the country with deep influence in politics, security, even the economy. Talk about their role today, the influence of the IRGC, um, essentially continuing what they see as that unfinished war and consolidating more and more power until today? Certainly. Uh, Well, the war had the impact on the IRGC of transforming it into a complete professional and powerful military organization. Uh, It emerged from the revolution as one of many revolutionary groups and armed revolutionary groups. And as a result of of the war, it emerged as as the powerful, uh, complete military organization that it is. 
Uh, a key step in that process uh, was the establishment of separate ground, naval, and air forces uh, in September 1985. Uh, another highly significant uh, impact of the war on Iran and the IRGC in particular was that it led to the development of domestic weapons industries. Uh, and that's because in the war, Iran came to fully appreciate the role that advanced technology plays in defense, and also that the advanced means required to preserve the country's independence could not themselves be dependent on others. Um, and whereas the Shah's military had relied overwhelmingly on foreign material and guidance, the Islamic Republic was almost entirely without outside aid. So in its rather characteristic fashion, uh, the regime endeavored to transform a deficiency into a source of strength and its lack of support into a crusade for self-sufficiency and independence. Uh, and it's that campaign that animated the IRGC's efforts to bolster Iran's firepower by developing indigenous defense industries, which accelerated as the war went on. Uh, and Iranian leaders tend to characterize those activities, the, the development of these weapons industries, uh, as one of the war's beneficial outcomes in what was otherwise a disastrous period. Uh, and they point especially to what had been achieved in the short period since the revolution, and since then have continued to call uh, for further growth on the basis of what had been learned in the war. Um, and while Iranian sources often go far uh, in their efforts to make an asset of adversity, uh, we shouldn't simply discount the significance of the Islamic Republic's ability uh, to actively respond to and learn from the challenging circumstances it was in. Uh, for example, it's clear that in the war, Iran moved quite far on the path from dependence to self-sufficiency, uh, and that the conflict gave rise to domestic defensive industries that have continued to advance since. And I think it's particularly telling that over time, the primary concern generated by the IRGC has shifted from its faith to its firepower, uh, with the export not of its revolution, but of its weapons, uh, increasingly identified by its adversaries with the danger it is seen to present. Um, the fact that by the mid-1990s, Iran would be militarily advanced enough to have insight and technology in which other countries would be interested, uh, and that within several decades, it would actually be supplying material to a country as advanced as Russia, uh, should be recognized as the significant transformation uh, that it was. Uh, another way that we see the war's impact on the IRGC um, and Iran comes from the IRGC's efforts to derive political and strategic lessons from the war, to actively study the war, to understand the security failure that allowed the invasion to happen, that the factors that contributed to the war's pro prolongation, 
and to try to learn from those experiences how to better defend the country. Uh, and so the security doctrine that has developed by the IRGC and others as a result of the war prioritizes deterrence and independence. Mm-hmm. Uh, the foremost goal of that doctrine is to prevent another war, especially the kind of full-scale invasion that the uh, Iraq war entailed, uh, and to develop a deterrence doctrine that is as broad as possible, that takes account of Iran's uh, deficiencies when compared to its main military adversaries, uh, and to try to rely on asymmetrical and soft power to try to make up uh, for those deficiencies, uh, and to prioritize self-sufficiency. Uh, in terms of defense and in terms of weapons manufacturing, uh, as I mentioned. Another way that the war influenced Iran's security doctrine today is that it generated a real profound distrust of the international system. Uh, IRGC leaders and other Iranian leaders uh, often maintain that the international system, the United Nations, uh, really failed Iran in the war in terms of failing to condemn the Iraqi invasion right away, to call for an immediate withdrawal of Iraqi forces, Uh, to fail to condemn Iraq's uh, use of chemical weapons, which increased as the war went on. Uh, And so that is another important legacy, especially when we understand things like the the nuclear negotiations uh, that have been going on for some time now, that Iran has a real distrust of world powers, the United States, the UK, and others, and of the United Nations because of the experience uh, it had with those institutions and countries uh, in the war. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's a great point you make. I think that's the era, the war, not history, which is very vivid in Iranian memory, you know, Iranian streets still bear the names of the martyrs of that war. Huge murals are seen on the walls in Iranian cities, neighborhoods. Um, but it's something that, that tends to be forgotten when, um, the today's role of the organization is studied and their outlook into the international community or um, the West per se. Um, Any, let's also talk about Ghazab Soleimani, the Iranian general, the military officer who served uh, in the guards, the Revolutionary Guards, essentially led its foreign operations, the Quds Force, for decades um as a as a commander of the Quds force for um many years until his assassination in January of 2020 if you can talk about his role and specifically also the impact of his assassination on where the organization stands today yes uh so Qasem Soleimani uh, as you said was a very influential uh, IRGC leader, 
Uh, he was one of the uh, earliest members of the organization. Uh, he participated in the Iran-Iraq War, as essentially all of, of the IRGC's current leaders did. Uh, and he was charismatic. He was known for maintaining a charismatic persona. Uh, and in particular, he drove the Quds forces involvement abroad. Uh, so the IRGC consists of several different forces, uh, an army, a navy, and an air force. Uh, and then the Quds force uh, is a small unit of that is in charge of uh, overseas operations. Uh, the RGC's activities in Iraq, in Syria, in other places are undertaken under the auspices of the Quds Force. Uh, and it was Suleimani who very much engineered and spearheaded the Quds Force involvement in those places and its support for proxies uh, that has gotten a lot of uh, attention in the news. Uh, and the assassination certainly hurt uh, the, the Quds Force and the IRGC uh, as it was forced to, <clears throat> excuse me, had to replace a, a central and very hard to replace uh, figure. Uh, but it, the organization did, in fact, uh, replace Suleimani and the Quds Force has continued to operate in a manner very similar to how it operated under Suleimani. Uh, and one of the things that that shows is the institutional strength of the IRGC, how the force became institutionalized in Iran and is able to operate uh, regardless of the particular individuals who are part of it or, or, or leading it, uh, and that one person uh, is, is replaceable, even someone as significant as Suleimani. Uh, and as the history of the, the war shows, the IRGC is quite adaptable. It has a long history of successfully adapting to new circumstances, uh, to transforming its organization, its methods, and even its mission uh, as the needs of the regime dictate. Uh, and so therefore, I think the really the most significant part of the assassination uh, was not the harm that it did to the IRGC or the Quds Force, uh, but was really the harm that it did to how Iranians view the United States, uh, that the assassination was most significant in terms of confirming the view of the United States as a country that is nefarious, that is untrustworthy, and that acts without regard for international law, while also calling for other countries like Iran to abide by international law. Uh, and what's important, too, is that those were exactly the same views of the United States uh, that were initially and rather definitively proved in the war. Uh, it's often not remembered in the United States, but the United States participated in the Iran-Iraq War. It was directly active uh, in the war's latter stages, especially in the Persian Gulf. And there were a series of military encounters between Iranian and American forces in that war. And according to the IRGC sources uh, and others, 
American involvement in the war was a massive challenge and was one of the things that eventually forced Iranian leaders to understand that after eight years of war, they could no longer keep up the fight. That fighting against Iraq, that fighting a, a mainly land war against Iraq was difficult enough. But once the war expanded, once through the, the war went through its phase of pluralization and expanded from the land to the air to the sea and expanded from military tools to economic, social, and political tools, and once it involved the direct participation of third parties, Iran simply did not have the ability to to continue to prosecute the war uh, as it did. And I think that's one of the the significant uh, aspects of the assassination that that is often lost, especially when the United States has been working over the course of, of many years uh, to try to come to an understanding with Iran uh, to limit its nuclear activities. Well, that, of course, can't be done unless there is some trust established between the parties. Uh, of course, the United States has reason not to trust Iran. Uh, but while that is taken as a given, we tend to forget that Iran also has reason not to trust the United States. Uh, and both the United States' involvement in the Iran Iraq War and its assassination of, of Soleimani add to that conviction, bolster that conviction that Iran will jeopardize its security if it puts too much trust in the United States. Mm -hmm. And finally, I also want to talk about designating the IRGC in 2019. Uh, former President Trump, the Trump administration designated the organization as a foreign terrorist organization. They've encouraged U.S. allies to follow suit. We've seen over periods of anti-government demonstrations inside the country, uh, groups in the Iranian diaspora um, have also asked or demanded the designation of the IRGC for their role in suppressing protests, cracking down inside the country, the various extraterritorial activities, the regional um, presence of Iran. Uh, talk about how you think that may have complicated or influenced um, the relations, you talked about the nuclear negotiations. Um, we know the U.S. and Iran are, are having back-channel talks for possible uh, new agreement or understanding. But how has this designation and the threats of further designations by the U.S. and its allies um, impacted or influenced the IRGC's role or how they see um, this sort of complicated relations with the West. Yes. Well, I, I think it, it helped to once again further confirm this view of the United States uh, as a country that is dangerous uh, to Iran, uh, just like the Soleimani assassination uh, and the U.S. involvement uh, in the Iran-Iraq war. Uh, and I think it shows, again, more than anything, the deficiencies in U.S. policy when it comes to Iran. Uh, sanctioning the entire IR IRGC uh, was quite a drastic step. It was the first time that the United States 
had designated the official military of another country as a terrorist organization. Uh, And the effect of that was that it increased the popularity of the IRGC in Iran. The, The IRGC is not sort of a commonly popular organization. Iranians are are not really eager to defend the IRGC when they don't have to. But Iranians, just like nationals of any other country, when they feel that they and their country is is being targeted unfairly, uh, is is under threat, uh, then they tend to rally around the flag. And, and that is exactly what we saw in the, the wake of the designation. I remember at the time that uh, Foreign Minister Mohammad Javad Zarif uh, tweeted out his support for the IRGC the day following the designation. He went to visit with IRGC commanders and condemned the designation uh, and also referred specifically to the Iran-Iraq war uh, and referred to the IRGC's role in defending Iran in the war against Iraq, uh, in the battle against ISIS, uh, and pointing to the defensive role that the IRGC plays. Uh, so, if anything, it, it helped further entrench the IRGC uh, within Iran. And again, it, it's not a particularly popular organization itself. Um, but what I think it shows is that policies have to be understand the complexities of the situation. Uh, it's important to say that. I'm not trying to excuse the IRGC's uh, behavior or it's the violence that it uses uh, against its its own society. Uh, but sanctioning the entirety or, or of the organization uh, doesn't do much to help stop that. Uh, more targeted sanctions on key IRGC leaders, on those who are acting to crack down violently on the Iranians who are uh, rising up to uh, support life and freedom, especially uh, of women. Uh, that is is not something that, uh, you know, sanctioning the entire IRGC is not going to help uh, support Iranians in that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also have spoken to experts and activists inside the country who share the same view, the assassination of Soleimani, the designation of the entirety of the organization, they argue, has actually helped um, the RGC consolidate more power, in fact, and become even more hardline towards the population itself. Well, I'll have to leave it there. Annie, thank you so much for joining the Iran podcast. Thank you so much. It was great speaking with you. That was Annie Tracy Samuel, an associate professor of history at the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga. And thank you for listening to their own podcast, the project of the Center for International Policy in Washington. Our producer is Joshua Barlow and our theme music is by 127 Band. Our cover art is by Mina Jafari. You can find us on all major podcast apps. So please subscribe and leave a review and rating for us. You can also support our work on Spotify and follow us on Twitter at Iran Podcast. I'm your host, Degar Murtazavi, and until next week, goodbye.